and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, George Lakoff. I just heard that announcement. Uh, like Virginia Woolf, George Lakoff understands that fascism begins in the cradle in the home with the babies. Uh, he talks, uh, writes a lot about authoritarian family values, you know, as opposed to nurturing family values. Uh, I always think of it as the culture of cruelty uh, as opposed to the culture of compassion. You know, the nurturing family goes with the flow. In the authoritarian family, the rule, I remember this from my parents' day, they laughed and said, don't pick him up when he cries. They meant that this was the kind of family uh, that uh, trained their children, um, disciplined them. That's the wrong word. To be a disciple is not such a bad thing. But uh, we all know that there are two sorts of folks, those who believe in punishment and those who think it's better, you know, it's kind of better to uh, explain things. I don't know why we need to learn this lesson every single decade. Never mind, never mind. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is the 1st of March, 2005. Marching right on into spring, I want to thank those of you who sent those generous um, subscriptions and contributions to Free Speech Radio God bless you. Without you, the listeners, we are certainly nothing. You're the sine non, the without whom nothing. We wouldn't exist. Especially, I thank listeners for letters, poems, articles you send me. Try to keep me well informed. I had one letter asking me why I didn't do more about the environment. And uh, I, I just have to tell you that, of course, uh, our first concern is always environmental issues. I couldn't agree more. I mean, without an environment, there wouldn't be anything else. Uh, we do have several shows, though, dealing directly with ecology. Um, Terra Verde and others. I, I hope that everyone here at the station, anyway, is uh, an eco-warrior, an eco-feminist, an eco-film critic, uh aware at all times of the perils, especially the perils of this administration's assault on our earth, air, land, water, on the future of our children. I did want to recommend one piece. Uh, it's written by Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Uh, it's just too grim to read to you aloud. Why Why would I do that? Yes, I, I read it alone in my room and put it aside thinking how painful it is. It's... Um, the Winter Issue of Earth Light. You can find this one on the web on commondreams.org. 
the news center there. It's um, titled, For the Sake of Our Children, by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., commondreams.org. And uh, essentially, he's writing, well, that we are living in a science fiction nightmare where money given to politicians... Uh, buys corporate ownership of damn near everything, everything that supports life on the planet. There it is. That's it. You heard it here. Uh, same old, same old. Of course, right-wing ideology keeps telling us, you see, that greed is good and that economic progress is what life is all about. It's our raison d'etre. You know, human fulfillment comes from competitive struggle. Uh, rugged individualism, never mind that uh, a social system like this uh, creates far more losers than winners. Uh, lives of not very quiet desperation. The desperation is beginning to scream. Uh, if you think about it, think about it, growth for its own sake is the ideology of a cancer cell. Now, half a century ago, Arthur Miller tried to tell us all about this. He wrote a play called Death of a Salesman, all about the empty calories in capitalism, you know. Willie Lohman, the salesman, is the victim of a grand illusion. I call it a delusion. He needs this dream that feeds his uh, need for success. Uh, obviously, uh, we have to feel good about doing these foolish things we do, um, otherwise we wouldn't do them, yes. Central nervous system will do anything to make itself feel good. Willie's, Willie's desire is to be well-liked. Remember, he talked of a friend and said, well, he's liked, but he's not well-liked. Willie wants to make it in the capitalist system, in the business world. In fact, uh, the truth is that Willie is happiest in his own backyard, uh, puttering around, putting seeds in the ground, getting close to the earth. Um, he obviously is not in touch with his uh, inner, inner peasant or inner earth self. Willie rages against the urban blight that is encroaching on his home and on his neighborhood. Uh, makes me think of old Thomas Jefferson, um, not that he was, uh, uh, well, he was a hands-on farmer, actually, but uh, uh, he had 200 and, I think, 240-odd slaves to do the work for him, but he was a gentleman farmer. Jefferson told us that corruption begins when man leaves the land, when we uh, turn our backs on the earth, when we become urban creatures, abstract, uh, when we're cut off from our source. Now, I remember in school arguing for uh, entire semesters about class warfare, about whether it was better under a feudal system or the present system. Uh, frankly, I, I don't think I want to go back to um, pre-industrial uh, worlds, but it's interesting. The farmer was clearly necessary to the uh, to the fellow up in the castle, to the guy who ran the manor house. Uh, at least things were clear in those days. Uh, for Willie, uh, of course, he's caught up in this mess. Uh, this mess. I, I remember once teacher telling me that in America, 
we've pretended to be Democrats, pretended, you see, that everyone uh, had the same, well, roughly the same status. As Willie Loman puts it, he says, someday they'll all play tennis together. Uh, he doesn't accept the fact that some of us uh, are working class and that others are ruling class. Uh, <laughs> apparently in America... We don't know what class we belong to, and therefore we suffer more. Uh, what shocked me this week, speaking of sources, is that Arthur Miller was completely ignored at the Academy Awards this week. Uh, now, I kept thinking to myself, is the theater our source uh, in the movies, or is it not? Uh, I guess, let's see, uh, the most recent Miller film uh, would be The Crucible, the one with Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Joan Allen. But I, I just, I couldn't fathom it. I thought, well, maybe, you know, he, he died just recently, Arthur Miller, so perhaps they didn't have a chance to get it together. Perhaps they wanted to do a really respectful um, uh, retrospective and... and uh, uh, bring out, uh, you know, all his friends. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, of course, uh, they simply, they simply gave it a pass. Uh, I positively shocked, uh, as an actor. I had a lifelong love affair with the plays of Arthur Miller. And as a feminist uh, film critic, I wrote about his conventional perceptions of men and women. You know, he, he had some gender benders. Do you remember that scene in Death of a Salesman? The scene in which Willie Loman's teenage son, Biff, surprises his father. Uh, Willie is on an out-of-town buying trip, and uh, uh, Biff discovers his dad having a fling with a woman, one of the buyers, I think, giving her, giving her stockings that should have gone to uh, Biff's mother, Willie's wife. Anyway, um, Biff is so shocked and disillusioned by his dad's adultery that he gives up on his own aspirations, opts for the life of a drifter, becomes a bum. In the 50s, we said it was being a bum. Anyway, Midwestern morality might motivate a young man to go sullen and become a failure to punish a parent, but I think it's a bit of a stretch. Uh, Miller, Miller was a man of his time, but what matters is that his plays always work dramatically, even when they verge on melodrama, uh, for sheer passion, for fire, and there's that, uh, oh, A View from the Bridge, it's his best blood and betrayal play, a violent, violent portrayal of a married man driven over the edge by a possessive love for a young relative. It's a woman that is living in his household and he should treat her as a daughter. This is primal stuff, biblical, Homeric, yes. Uh, his masterwork, Miller's masterwork, for me, is The Crucible. I find it as relevant today as it was in the 1950s, back when the House Un-American Activities Committee was targeting artists and writers, you remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the line was, we used to we used to say this around the dorm when I was a kid, yes, the devil is loose in Salem, the devil is loose in Salem, yeah. Witchcraft here. Anyway, 
gets loose in Salem or Hollywood or San Francisco uh, these days. Uh, uh, the right wing suddenly sees devils everywhere. It was my favorite line a few years ago. The fellow who was giving the uh, address at uh, the Christian uh, Conservative Conference, he he said, oh, he said, he said, Washington, D.C. is no longer Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Rodham and Gomorrah. Meaning, of course, Hillary Clinton's rise as the reigning witch. Anyway, in play, The Crucible, Arthur Miller uses sexual jealousy once more. He uses this to trigger the tragedy. It's always a good hook, you know, social constraints and Puritan values push the whole community into paranoid complicity. <laughs> I remember there was a skit done by uh, Michael Moore's troupe. He was doing a show on television called TV Nation, and he sent hordes of uh, Puritans, Salem, Salem villagers, over to the house of Ken Starr. You remember Ken Starr wrote the report on uh, Monica Lewinsky and the president. Anyway, uh, they stood outside Ken Starr's house and cried, uh, cried witchcraft. Anyway, we know that homeland security, so-called, depends on rooting out devils everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's an enemy, a devil. Miller presents us with Abigail in the crucible. A woman scorned, yes. Hell hath no fury like this uber-wench. Abigail has had carnal knowledge of the play's central character, John Proctor. If you look up the historical facts, it seems that the girls who cried witchcraft in Salem Village were all much too young. They were at least prepubescent. Um, Abigail, I think, would have been 10 or 11. Uh, check in the library. Shirley Jackson has a wonderful book, especially for students, young students, called The Witchcraft of Salem Village. Tells all about the girls. Uh, and how they got carried away. Some people thought it was moldy bread or LSD. Miller, however, creates a teenage seductress, a woman who tempts John. His wife Elizabeth is ill or under the weather or anyway, not available. And uh, John and Abigail meet in the stable. Uh, Abigail is employed in their home. But before the play begins, Elizabeth has put her out for for fornication. Elizabeth is John's loyal and uptight wife, the mother of his sons. I suppose late 17th century is a good place for a Madonna whore schism. It does, it works, it makes the play work. But I think Abigail gets a raw deal, historically speaking. Uh, Proctor is the voice of reason, the playwright, maybe. He's got a modern sensibility. Um, he's kind of us. He's kind of 20th century. Sets him outside the play's uh, era. At one point, he's confronting his wife's suspicions, and he says that her justice would freeze beer. The best expression of 17th century thought seems to come from the Reverend Hale. Now, Hale is a clerical scholar. He's come to Salem to seek out witchcraft, you know, to clean house here in Salem. He does all too good a job. 
Now, Miller uses this character to give us a man of that time, of the uh, late 17th, early yeah, 18th century, what was it, 16, I've got the date here somewhere. Anyway, the time of the witchcraft uh, trials in Salem. This man transitions, uh, he changes, grows, he gets it at some point. Um, by the end, the end of the play, the Reverend Hale is uh, brokenhearted. He's going among the victims there in prison and uh, suffering. He implores them to confess, confess to witchcraft and live. He tells them that uh, it's a vanity. God doesn't want their death, that holding out is not heroic. It's kind of a sacrilegious suicide. The Crucible is this brilliant study in group hysteria. Uh, it gives us a, a wonderful portrait of the dangers of groupthink. Look around, folks. It's everywhere. Now, as I said, the film is available. You can get that on uh, DVD with Winona Ryder as Abigail. Yes, Daniel Day-Lewis, Joan Allen as Elizabeth. I think Abigail's hysteria... Uh, should be played as more a fear of authority than sexual repression. But, uh, I mean, she gets, she, she gets herself into this thing with the big lie, and then she can't get out. As the public trial progresses, she gains more and more control over the other girls, the ones who are uh, crying witchcraft with her. Her desire to dance on the grave of her lover's wife may have been her initial impulse, but the taste of power within this tightly knit community, this feeds her narcissism. She turns uh, vindictive and then at some point grandiose. Uh, yes, power corrupts. Of course, women never behave that way anymore. Arthur Miller came of age in a post-Victorian America. In those days, many men still tend to idolize or demonize women. I know my father did. Miller had a memorable television film, uh, Playing for Time. Do you remember that? It was on television, yes. Uh, he portrayed Jewish women in a Nazi concentration camp. At times, they seemed to suffer more from dishonor and from dysentery. These women use their skills to survive in the death camp, whether that means, you know, playing music in the orchestra, amusing their oppressors, or, or trading food for sex with the guards. As Shirley Knight plays a Nazi officer. She sacrifices the life of a little blonde Jewish boy, a child she deeply loves. She does this for the greater good of the state. Yes, that's where ideology can lead. Um, ah, the means justifies the end. The other stars in the uh, uh, show uh, were Jane Alexander, Vanessa Redgrave. It was the best all-female cast I've ever seen on television, but this play is forgotten now. Could be because women's stories seldom find a permanent place in our... Uh, canon, our master narrative. Willie Loman is secure in our literary mythos, yes. He's part of the mythology permanently. 
Master narratives began long ago with our heroic warrior. You remember Homeric tales of winners and losers always. Yes. Oh, now that narrative has expanded to include an anti-hero or the little man. That's what Miller gave us. Yes. As his wife Linda says about Willie Loman, a little man can be just as tired as a great man. The little woman is to be found in the plays of Tennessee Williams. That is, if you can find her within the playwright's anima. Yes. Tennessee Williams gives us a, a homosexual uh, sensibility in contrast to Arthur Miller's heterosexual uh, limitations. Back in the mid-20th century, there was a lot of talk about the need for drama, great drama, tragedy, to present heroic figures, large persons who fall from a great height. Yes, you know, Ate, Hubris, Nemesis, um, kings, that sort of thing. Losers, we were told. Losers can't be tragic, my professor told us. They have no magnitude. <laughs> I was at Mills College as an undergrad when Arthur Miller married Marilyn Monroe. So much for magnitude, we told our professor. Yeah, we thought intellectuals were different. Obviously, Arthur Miller was a man like any other, falling for a fantasy. Little did we know then that it was Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, who would become a myth, an archetype, uh, in a way, a goddess. In the 1960s, Miller wrote about his marriage to Marilyn in After the Fall. He paints his wife's pain as a crippling narcissism devolving into masochism. The male character in the play, Quentin, you know, the somewhat self-righteous voice of the playwright, perhaps, tells her, that is, Maggie, the uh, Marilyn Monroe character, he tells her that while her self-pity may be justified, She's not just a victim, but she is a perpetrator as well. She has hurt others in turn. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed. There's always two sides to these questions. Check out Arthur Miller's autobiography, Time Bends, for more on the man and his meaning. I score one for Arthur Miller's indictment of capitalism and the American Nightmare. Death of a Salesman had a successful run in China a few years ago. <laughs> They're catching up. Playwrights need to revise and update universal themes. Point us the way to utopia. Point us away from this current fascist new world order. It's threatening us with reruns every damn decade. The great plays can move us from protest to resistance. They transcend the therapeutic and even the diagnostic. I think of many of today's efforts as autopsies. That recent TV drama about the Reagans was a sad sample. Judy Davis was fun as the manipulative Nancy, but the pathology of puppets is pointless. Uh, family dysfunction as it bleeds into public lives may be symbolic of the general malaise, but it's just too easy reading such poisoned entrails and omens. I'm one of those who doesn't blame Hitler's mother or father, although I am, I am interested looking at uh, sources, you know, finding neurotic nurture as a source. But if everyone who had an unhappy childhood uh, grew up to be 
Adolf Hitler, uh, I think we'd be in a bind with the Reagans. It's not their psychiatric ills that turned the presidency into a movie-tone monarchy. It was their shallowness, their uh, simplistic souls. As for the TV show, well, yeah, you, you can't really caricature cardboard. Uh, yes, the, the depth of shallowness was hard to gauge. My My own search today in 2005, my search is for a playwright prophet who can imagine a future for us, something beyond stupidity, a world in which our species can function without an enemy. You know, when the conflict is simply within each of us, uh, the conflict uh, that doesn't need to blame others. Definition by difference just creates more wars, more conflict, we're still hanging on the cross of class and gender and race and ethnicity and hierarchy, whatever. Every human relationship is based on some degree of dominant submission. That paradigm begins in the cradle. If we are not loved, we will not love. If we do not love, if we do not learn to love, as children, we will not be loved by others. Sadism is the sad riddle of our species. Power over others is our revenge for cruelties we suffered in childhood. As W. H. Auden put it, we desire not universal love, but to be loved alone. Only the liberated heart can love others, can sing for us all. The theater of the 21st century must sing about magnitude. Yes, we got to have some of that magnitude. But it's got to be the magnitude of multitudes, the majesty, not of a single man or king or queen, but of a community of souls. I did... I did watch the Oscars. The movies that I liked best, I have to tell you, are, let's see, where's my list? I liked uh, Born into Bordellos. That's my absolute favorite. And my uh, pick for a woman's movie is Vera Drake. That's the one about the English abortionist in the 1950s. And uh, The Sea, The Sea Inside, that one best foreign film, it's a much better description of quadriplegia, a much better understanding of that tragedy than we get in Million Dollar Baby, the uh, winner. And let's see, I had actually nine films that were worth watching, but uh, the truth is, you kind of you kind of have to follow your bliss here. Uh, I think I, I did love uh, Kate Blanchett in uh, the Aviator because she was channeling, literally channeling uh, Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> that was a trip. The best movie of the year, and it didn't even get nominated. I don't think did it? No, was Hotel Rwanda. That's the most politically 
significant film. Uh, Hotel Rwanda, Born into Brothels, um, and Vera Drake. Those are the the Don't Miss It films. And maybe next week I'll have time to discuss uh, Hilary Swank's dress. Someone said it looked like a burqa from the front, but in the back you could see new cleavage. I thought it was a knockout. Don't we love tinsel? This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning. I'll do the Oscars on Thursday morning. That's a good plan. At 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Happy endings are the NATA, the National Asian American Telecommunications Association, presents the 23rd San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival playing from March 10th through the 20th in San Francisco, Berkeley, and San Jose. As usual, the festival features the latest films from China, Japan, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and India. Films will be showing at the Castro and AMC Kabuki 8 Theaters in San Francisco, the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, and the Camera 3 Cinemas in San Jose. For more information or tickets, please call 415-865-1588. That's 415-865-1588. Or visit www.natanet.org. That's N-A-A-T-A-N-E-T dot O-R-G. This year's festival is proudly sponsored by KPFA's Hard Knock Radio. Yeah.